we are going to jump into our message today. We're kind of taking just a few weeks to, I'm trying to create sort of a, um, a foundation, if you will, for this next season of Door of Hope. And this foundation, this idea of coming back to the center um, is, is flowing out of this deep, um, this deep conviction uh, that God is doing something radical uh, in the church right now, uh, specifically in the States. Um, I'm sure it's globally, but we're feeling it in a, in a very powerful way here. Being at the end of a, a, a year and a half of COVID, uh, before COVID started, we were 1,400 people, on the, adults on a Sunday, to be reduced to half the attendance uh, in, in over a year, but at the same time, this whole new wave of young people coming, a whole new wave of, of people that aren't, even, uh, that aren't even believers, that are looking for something. Um, I, I started feeling guilty because personally, this has been the most fun I've had doing church since 2014. And, and I'm not saying that, that is not a hyperbolic statement. And, and really, it flows out of actually not only a, a, a deep dive into what is God doing right now, what is God saying, what is God speaking to us where we're at, but really this deep conviction that's almost like a, I would almost say a prophetic word that the Lord keeps putting on my heart that I feel reluctant to speak because it's so counterintuitive um, as a guy who loves to see people meet Jesus as a guy who wants to see a revival in our city, but I believe that we are confronted with what I would refer to as a divine shaking. What we see in Hebrews, that he will shake all that is, all that can be shaken until only that which is unshakable remains. And I refer to this as a purge, not like the bad franchise, which I've never seen any of those, and I like horror films, but that just looks dumb. Uh, but I do believe that there is a, a bit of a spiritual purge, if you will, um, a shaking uh, of the foundations because I believe that we have, over the last 30 years since the end of the Jesus um, movement, which was the birth of what we now have as the great sacred secular divide, um, at least as we know it in sort of evangelical non-denominational movements, uh, what began as a legitimate movement of God, people, Jesus showed up in a powerful way in a counterculture amongst a counterculture. Uh, and that was hippies within this summer of love that turned out to be not what they had hoped for. That all the promises of self-fulfillment that would come through through the removal of the boundaries and the parameters of our parents' morality. This was what the baby boomers thought. We will find real freedom. We can sleep with who we want to. We can read who we want to. We can, we can do the drugs that we want to. And this is actually gonna bring in a new utopia where people actually love each other. But it didn't lead to that. In fact, the fa fascinating documentary, if you wanna see uh, a, a picture of like the underbelly of the summer of love is the, is the, great, um, the great Altamont Speedway um, concert that was supposed to be the West Coast Woodstock with the Rolling Stones that ended up in murder. 
and a, a whole bunch of horrific things, but it became actually symbolic of the collapse of the whole hippie culture and ideology. But out of the, this movement came this radical return to the gospel. And the Jesus movement was birthed in places like Costa Mesa and Calvary Chapel, and then out of there, the birth of the Vineyard Movement. But really, it was happening on a global scale where God was revealing himself, and there was this return to the simplicity of the gospel, to a conviction around sin, a belief that Jesus is the Son of God, a, a simplicity in and what the Christian life looked like. It wasn't happening in mainline denominations. It was happening amongst the people that the mainline denominations said are beyond saving. And it was these kids meeting Christ, falling in love with them, and they so deeply wanted to, to live a life fully surrendered that it led to the kind of famous pictures you see of rock and roll records being thrown in the burn barrel along with the prophets of the beat generation and their books, you know, that no more Kerouac, no more Allen Ginsberg, no more Joan Didion, no more James Baldwin, all that went in the burn barrel with the records and the drugs. They didn't need drugs anymore. Now they had the Holy Spirit. They didn't need rock and roll because now they had Maranatha. Actually, it was birthed out of that. They didn't need, they didn't need literature because now they had Hal Lindsey. And uh, if you don't know who that is, you're probably better off for it. Um, but, it I, but this was a, it, it was a legitimate move of God and it was a desire to be separate from the world that had been so crushing we're gonna live sold out for Jesus. But the problem is the same problem that we have of history. Wherever a real movement of God happens, often what, what comes in the next generation is instead of the meeting of God in an intimate way, what you have is the, the, the outworkings of that first generation's meeting with God, which is we're gonna get rid of these things so that we can be close to God. That is what was handed down to the kids. It wasn't Jesus, it's not that it was the intention, and plenty of kids met Jesus, but I'm saying that the, the skeleton without the heart is what was handed down. The rules, the regulations, the separation. We can't be of the world, so what do we get? We, we give up art and we get Thomas Kincaid. We, and that is, a, that is a, actually a horrific thing that happened in Christendom. Like, shame on us. And if you have a Kincaid picture, sell it. Um, I don't care if you like the little cottages of light. It's the, the light doesn't even make sense. It's coming from every direction in the picture. It's not even appropriate. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we, like, like, we don't want Picasso. There's naked people. We're going to get the cottages in the woods with, from the painter of lights. Um, <laughs> all, all joking aside is what we created was a, was a counterculture that mimic the ways of the world, but not as well. And so Christianity has ran over the last 30 years in sort of this strange parallel universe. And what's fascinating is that there was this attempt to be a corrective that was touted as another movement of God um, at, at about the beginning of 2000, probably a little bit before that and a little after that, um, that was what I would call not the emergent movement, but the emergent mistake. And what it was, it was, it was the children of that original movement of God who said, we want to do church different. We're tired of the rules. We're tired of the regulations. 
We're tired of the teetotaling. We're going to go back to the rock and roll. Now we're going to do theology at the pub. And, and a whole new prophet was born. But it was a different kind of prophet than the Hebrew prophets. For this prophet was not saying, thus saith the Lord. These prophets were saying, did the Lord actually say? And they began to poke at the foundations of, of, of Christendom. I think of one particular leader who was probably the most well-known and was on the cover of, of Christianity Today as the great new hope of evangelicalism. And he was the king of poking at the foundations of the Christian faith. And, and it was like watching the fascinating game of Jenga. Um, and how many pieces could he pull from the bottom before the whole thing collapsed? And eventually it did. It collapsed into full-blown heresy. And, and, and with that, he took a whole group of leaders with him before he fell. You can only pull out the foundations of our faith so far before you end up with a, with a gutted Christianity and Jesus is no longer the only way. And I think now we're sitting in this new place where there is being a reckoning where all of these churches, again and again, we're seeing leaders crash, questions around the health of the megachurch model. The most popular podcast right now um, in religion that's being listened to by millions of people. I was just talking with Tim Smith because Tim's in it is The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, and if you listen to that, because that, that was the, I would say the emergent stream kind of split in two. You had those that were pushing outside of the realm of of orthodoxy, and then you had this other movement that moved back toward like really intense reformed theology, kind of the, what was referred to as the young, restless, and reformed. And they had their own problems, which was, which was uh, you know, leadership abuses, you know, heavy-handedness, you know, crass communication that was wrapped in orthodoxy, but it lacked love. And it's like, you can't dump theology for love, nor can you keep theology and not have love, you're going to end up with a mess on both sides. And so with all of this, I've come to this deep, deep conclusion, like, I mean, a deep conviction. And this is what I've come to. I do not believe that it is ever healthy for someone as a pastor to be famous. It may be an inevitability, and there are some that can handle it, but not many, not many. I'm not sure that I could. And I can say that the healthiest season of Door of Hope was when I was not concerned about the platform that was being built. I didn't take speaking engagements. I just cared about seeing people get saved. And, and, and long before everyone started getting angry and disappointed in me and feeling let down by my unavailability, there was a time when it was just, I just was in the midst of things with the staff and we just loved people and we told people about Jesus and we held to our pillars, which was the cross, community, simplicity in the city and, and a single service and we just, and it exploded with new conversions. Hundreds of people got saved. But something happened the moment we went to two services. The moment we went to two services, we officially moved into that realm of the megachurch. We tried to be, not be it, but we 
quickly jumped up to that 1600 person realm. Tim Mackey's on staff, him and I are teaching like crazy. And it was, and, and it got bigger and it got more complicated and we had to take on a building. And, and all of a sudden we were trying to put infrastructures in place and we gotta get more corporate, we gotta get more organized because people are getting lost in the cracks. And all of a sudden our back door was, it was as big as our front door. And we're doing five services on Sunday to meet everybody in a church that only held 400. And surprise, Tim and I become unbelievably burnt out. And I'm like, I hate being a pastor. I hate this. I hate the pressure. I can't please anybody. I'm disappointing everyone. My elders are frustrated. The church is frustrated. My wife's frustrated. And I'm like, I just want to get out of here. I'm like stuck in this place. And then I started to be like, well, it's me. I've, you know, I'm glitchy. That's true. But I started to think in this time, like, why am I so happy at the end of COVID? And I realized because it's back to a place where I actually can be known and know the people again. And so this is why we are moving to a single service next week. Now, I've told the elders that this is what I want to do. What I haven't told them is that I'm not convinced that we should ever go back to two. And we're going to be full immediately. Next week, we're going to be full. I mean, we're not going to be totally full. When, when, when Luis Palau spoke, we squeezed 1,300 people into here. It was amazing. And I think we could do the same thing again. Because what I would much rather do, I am not hardwired to run a megachurch. It's not my personality. But I don't think anybody should. Because I've seen people do it, and they can do it organizationally. I have never yet, I've worked in four megachurches, massive churches. I have yet to see people well-loved or cared for in any of them because it is impossible. The bigger the church gets, the more lost you get in the crowd. The bigger the church gets, the more impossible it is to actually shepherd the flock. Um, the bigger the church gets, the, the, more, the more demands there are placed upon, the, upon leadership and it, you can start getting pulled in a multitude of directions and it becomes difficult to maintain mission. And me and Rick McKinley were talking once and I said, I go, he goes, what was your favorite season of Door of Hope? And I said, when we were like 800 to 1,000. Like, it was big enough that it was exciting and we could move and make things happen, but it was small enough that I still felt like I could know a lot of the people. At least with the whole staff, we could know everybody. Um, and, and I think that this is where I believe God is calling us back to is what, what if we had a whole different mindset? Does this neighborhood even need five services happening on Sunday? Will we be favorable in inner Southeast Portland without a single parking lot? Do you think they'll be stoked on us if we, if we just exploded and we just kept growing it? I would argue no, no they will not. But what if instead we're like, we're too big, we must plant. What if we just started doing this again and again and raising up leaders instead of it being cult of personality? I'm happy to use my charisma to be a catalyst for more plants, but I do not wanna use it as a means of building a ministry for myself and I don't wanna do it at the expense of you and I don't want it to do it at the expense of my soul. <laughs> and I just got brought into another travesty, a church that many of you know that it's not in Portland, thank God, but I got brought into a discussion with a group of pastors who asked me to help figure out how to approach it, but another massive, massive sexual scandal that's gonna blow up in the media very soon and I had to call pastors in California to let them know that they should not engage with this personality because 
the elders were hiding the sin to protect the ministry because there was too much money involved. And this person is a sexual predator and it, and, and it just breaks my heart. And the fact is, is because we've built up these celebrities, we've turned pastors into these, these, these stars that we think should be beyond sin or somehow untouched by it. And so they're the most susceptible to it because the human ego isn't meant to receive the praise of men. That's why Spurgeon, when he said, when a woman went up to him and said, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. Um, has anyone else told you that? And, she, and he said, yes, the devil did five minutes ago. I used to think that was snarky. I actually think it's unbelievably wise. It's like C.S. Lewis, when he was asked how he felt about becoming famous, and he said, one can never not think of it too much. And I believe in God raising up voices for the church but I look at people like Eugene Peterson. He was a massive influence on the church abroad, but he only pastored a church of 400 people. And that was his commitment, and it kept him sane as a pastor. <laughs> you know. And I think that this is like, we have to ask the question of what's the purpose of the church? And I believe the purpose of the church is to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus, which all of you play a part in. It's not just my responsibility, it's all of us. I believe in the staff that God is bringing right now. I believe in, in in Ian and John C and, and Evan and Chelsea. We have an amazing staff and there are amazing new communicators coming up and I wanna be a church that plants churches, that, that Door of Hope, it becomes a church that's known not for Josh White or Tim Mackey, but for Jesus. That we're just known for being about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. So that's a long intro, but I just wanna say all of this comes down to the conviction that we must maintain our center our center is our equilibrium, and I will bring you to the cross again and again because the church has become about all kinds of things, but this is the only thing that will keep us sane. If you look at this first verse um, from 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul writes, For I have resolved to know, or some translations say, I have determined to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For a guy who knew pretty much everything, maybe outside of Jesus, was the smartest guy for sure who wrote the majority of the New Testament, who was versed in, in Greek philosophy. He was, he was a, 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 a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, the guy was like an, a, a Hebrew scholar, and yet he says, everything I know, I sum it up to this. This is the center. Now, it doesn't mean that the only thing Paul preached was sermons on the cross. It just meant that everything he did was... Uh, was dictated by his understanding of the centrality of the gospel, the centrality of the cross. You see, P.T. Forsyth was right when he said that Christ is to us just what his cross is to us. All that Christ was in heaven and on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. And, and what I want to simply say about this is that the Christian life has never been about personal comfort or respite from difficulty. And I think one of the reasons that we're seeing churches empty out is because we have so mimicked the ways of the world, so mimicked the culture around us, that people have believed that the purpose of the church and the reason that you gather on Sunday is for your own personal growth. And I would say, unless we understand that Jesus said, unless I be lifted up, 
if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself, that our reason for gathering and the reason I want to see as many people crammed into a singular service as possible is because the witness that it is to the community. If it's just about teaching, you can listen to every great communicator in the world from the comforts of your bedroom. You don't need to come to church if it's just about your personal growth. But what if it's about actually being a light in the city? What if it's about an outward focus rather than an inward focus? What if it's about determining to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, which means that you are bringing nothing to the table except your dead body. And that's all I'm bringing to the table as well. And we are calling people into the life of Christ by presenting ourselves to him as a living sacrifice that we might be a witness to the city. What if God actually brought a revival to Portland? If the revival that came last time was amongst the hippies, I can't think of a better city than Portland to be the place where God shows up in power. You see, the paradox of Christianity, there are many. Uh, they're endless. The cross is the ultimate paradox. And, and I think when we think about the paradox of Christianity, I think it... it, it we find it acutely felt when we think about the concept of rest and, and struggle or rest and tribulation. Jesus in one side says in Matthew 11, come to me all you are weary and I will give you rest. Come to me, I'm gonna give you rest. It's one of my favorite passages when I preach the gospel because I know people come in exhausted, they're worn out, they're lost, and they're weary. And Jesus is always inviting people into himself. And he says, come to me, I'm gonna give you rest. But then he says, take my yoke upon you, which is engage in what I'm doing, which seems to be where the rest is actually found, which is counterintuitive. Because when we think of rest, we think of vacation. When I think of rest, when I think of like, I mean, if I was to think about uh, the amount of people, although there's so many moving to Portland right now, there is a lot of people, especially from the church, moving out of Portland because they can no longer handle its, you know, its progressive socialist agenda. It's, it, you know, it's, we're going to go move into like the more seriously American parts of the country, like, like uh, Idaho and Montana and, and Wyoming and North Dakota or Alaska. You know what's fascinating? Those five states right there actually have the highest suicide rate last year. Not Portland. And I would argue what it tells us is that the respite or the peace that we so ardently seek is not going to be found on this side of eternity. That you can run from the pain and the suffering and the, and the trash and the homelessness of a city like Portland and you can go make your abode in the quiet, the quiet agrarian ideals of Montana. But the bottom line is you can't escape yourself. And as long as you live in fallen bodies with fallen minds and fallen, in a fallen world, sin is an inescapable reality. And, 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 and I, I get it. If I was to pick my ideal, um, if I could just go wherever I want to go, I would go, you know, I would say I've determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified from the comfort of a dock on the Puget Sound, you know, drinking sangria with my wife by my side watching orcas swim. That would be my, like, because orcas, you know, they may eat seals, but they don't eat pastors like, like people in the pews do. And, uh, um, and, 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 but that's not what God has called. He hasn't called me to a life of comfort. He's called me to a life with him, and wherever he is, that is where the rest is. And we think about these, when I was in Tahoe um, uh, 
a, a, a friend said, this is what we like to, what the Celts, uh, it was the ancient Celts that referred to sacred, there were these sacred spaces, they call them, they call them thin places, where heaven and earth, earth seemed to come together. And it, it did kind of feel like that Tahoe, the, the lake in the morning when it's not moving, it, it literally, like the sky and the water almost merge. It's the craziest thing. It is just glorious. And I thought, yeah, I get that as a thin place. But I would argue that the thin place is wherever Jesus is. And Jesus is far more interested in the broken homeless camp over here than he is the middle of the water in Lake Tahoe where there's no people. That he, that the thin place is where, where Jesus is going. And, and the problem is, is, is we're like Jacob. God is in this place and I didn't know it. And maybe we don't know it because we're not, we're not anchored to the cross. We're not lifting Jesus up. We're not pointing people to that because we're too busy looking in, too busy looking toward our own comfort. You see, this is what Jesus meant when he said, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. You're okay because I have overcome the world. Yes, you're, you're, the death rate still is one per person, but oh, death, where is your sting? Or sin has died with Jesus on the cross. Death has died with Jesus on the cross. The dominions of darkness have been conquered with Jesus on the cross. And, and, and I think when we live in that victory, that means that the safest place and the most joyous place that one can be, the ability to enjoy heaven on the way to heaven is to be wherever Christ is. And when he says, follow me, he's asking us to follow him into a broken world. He's saying, walk with me and walk like me. And the thing with following, it's not marching orders where you march quietly behind this militant God. No, it's, it's, a, it's a call to intimacy, but it is also a call to absolute allegiance and a full surrender that he gets to define and decide where you go. It's, he's like my son Henry when he was little and I would take him to the zoo. He always demanded to have control of the map and where we went. And I was there to follow him, which meant to walk with him, and he led me wherever he wanted to go. Jesus does the same thing, except it's not to go look at animals. It's to go look at different kinds of animals, us. <laughs> and he wants to lead us out into the world. And, and that's the thing. I went for a walk with my wife yesterday through the beautiful neighborhood by our house. But if we were walking with Jesus, I know he would lead me to places I don't want to go. He would take me the opposite direction, down to the Johnson Creek Market, where there's like a little homeless camp right now. He would have, he would have, he would have taken me over here by the Sunnyside Elementary. I'm like, oh, I don't want to walk there. It's dirty. And he says, that's where I'm going. And if you want to be with me and experience me, that's where you need to be. And I think that this reminds us, the cross at the center reminds us that we are not allowed to define for ourselves any longer what is right and what is wrong. We don't get to dictate the terms of our own lives to our Lord. He is Lord, which means we are not. And the cross is a reminder that Jesus actually came down into the brokenness, into the worst that humanity could be. And he says, I am taking this into myself because it is his heart to love and to reach that which is lost. And he loves broken people. And so if we want to avoid the brokenness of our culture, what we're actually doing is we're avoiding Jesus, is what I'm trying to say. We're actually living apart from the, the theology of the cross because the cross demands a surrender 
of our comforts and our rights because the Son of God died for us. And it is the love of Christ that compels us. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 1, Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in the troubles with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, our comfort is found in the struggle where we are to bring that same comfort to those who are hurting around us. We can't circumnavigate the cross. We can't go around it. We can't go through it. We continue to look to it and it reflects back on us the very death that Christ died. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus did not come to help fulfill our dreams, but to bring life to our dead bodies. And that is the gospel. When people ask me, what will it cost me to follow Jesus? It'll cost you everything. Because it's not about you, it's about him. But when it's about him, it actually does become about you and that's where your joy is found and he's after that. He may love you not because you're lovable, because it's his nature to love you, but it's also fair to say that he is not content to exist without you. And that is a beautiful and powerful truth. The cross is a continual reminder to us as a church that all that needs to be done has been done in Christ. All sin has been dealt with once and for all in Christ, in him crucified. Death has been dealt with once and for all in Christ. Death for us now is the means by which we are ushered into more life. The power of the gospel brings us back again and again to this place, this central place that is foolishness to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it is the power of God to salvation. And why we need to be under the umbrella of the cross and why it has to be our center moving forward as a church is if we're gonna actually allow God to do the correctives necessary for us to be a life-giving, vital community, and it's okay that it's maybe taken us 12 years to get to this place um, because God has worked in the last 12 years powerfully in Door of Hope in spite of us. He worked in Door of Hope during the years I didn't want to be the pastor here. He worked in the years where I did want to be the pastor because it's not about me, it's about him. And the fact is, is that even in the worst of churches where the gospel even seems to be unbelievably compromised, wherever the name of Jesus is lifted up, surprise, he still saves people. That's why Paul said, I don't care if they preach um, from right reasons or for vain, for vain pursuit as long as Jesus is being lifted up. It's hard for us to get our heads around that when someone says, I got saved listening to Joel Osteen. You're like, no, you probably didn't. I'm like, who are you to define what Jesus is able to save someone through? My friend Nestor got saved by Jesus talking to her in a shower in Iran as a Muslim girl with no church anywhere near. God is God. His sovereignty means he's free to do what he wants. And he seems to want to save sinners like you and I. And if we keep the cross at the center, we won't be surprised when he saves other sinners. <laughs> what you should be continually surprised by is that he saved you. Law is seductive. This is one of the things we have to learn as the church. In Galatians 3.11, if we can get that verse up. Galatians 3.11, it says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. 
Romans 7.18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Because of the, what I call the law of mixture, we will always have the de default setting of moving back toward law to fix ourselves. So law doesn't have to be Torah. It is anything we do to try to perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit. And it's not just even Christians, those outside of the church. The world is ran by the principles of law. It is this idea that law is always defined by a ladder. It's the things that we do to try to move toward fulfillment, the things that we do to try to become enough. It's the things that we do to find um, uh, that, to achieve the awesomeness that the self-help industry is constantly telling us is right below the surface. It's the, it's the materialistic worldview that God is within each of us. We just need to know how to tap its potential. This is why the self-help industry is an $11.5 billion industry because law is seductive and it's no different in the church. The world calls it self-help. The church often confuses it for spiritual formation. But it's literally that search for the silver bullet to arrive. And this is why life feels so impossible. Because it is. The most difficult thing in life is to live well. We're all trying to figure out how to live well. We can't figure out why we're so unhappy. And we keep thinking, if I do this, if I do this diet, if I do this exercise, if I read these books and become enlightened, maybe Jordan Peterson will set me free. No, maybe Bernie Sanders will. No, whatever it is, we're looking for these different voices. We're looking for the prophets of the age that can allow us to fully become all that we know we're able to be. It's the powerful book on the bestseller list that is such drivel it makes me throw up in my mouth. You're a bad A and you just don't know it. How to release your your, your, your bad A awesomeness today. You guys seen that one? As I like to say, I want to write my own book that's called Your Bad and an A, and you should know it, <laughs> for this is the gospel. And I think that this is the reality, is that when we actually have a low view of human ability apart from Jesus, what what the Zals call low anthropology, or just a strong understanding of what sin is, that it actually cripples us, it binds us, it blinds us, and it makes it impossible for us to reach God in our own efforts. The cross is the reminder that it took God coming down to us to be free, not us climbing up to him. You see, this is written into the fabric of history collectively and personally, and it is anchored in what I would say is the archetypal story of Babel. It's the wasteland of failed attempts to build to the heavens only to find a foundation faulty and unobtainable. And I think the, though the, the details of our lives vary on this side of eternity, there does seem to be this immovable law that binds us together without prejudice. We want so desperately to believe we can climb our way out of the mess that we're in. But every attempt to climb or build to the heavens leads inevitably to frustration, confusion, exhaustion, and despair. Because sin, the gravitational pull on the human heart, is not toward, it is not toward total surrender, but untapped potential. Sin is what leads you to the false belief that you can actually be all that you want to be if you just put your mind to it. 
That's why I say again and again, that's why we're so offended when our celebrities take their own lives because they are the ones who have climbed to the top of the mountain where we're still struggling to get to base camp and they get all the way to the top and they look back down at us and say, there's nothing up here before plummeting to their deaths. And we're not sad that they're dead, we're offended that they abused what we think we deserve and would have treated differently. But it doesn't work that way. They were right to find that God wasn't found up there or in here. Because as I said in the beginning, God is found down in the brokenness of the world. David Zoll said in his book, um, Seculosity, people are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. And I think that that is so true. The amount of false belief that one actually has meaning or value dependent upon the amount of likes they have on, in, or, and followers on Instagram is, the, is a perfect picture of the unbelievable shallowness of our current culture and the emptiness of this pursuit of being known. Everybody wants to belong, everybody wants to be loved, but we're pursuing it in ways that actually do great damage to our souls and the church has no place being in the business of giving people ladders to climb. We are called to preach a gospel that reminds people again and again that you cannot escape the mixture, but Jesus has already done something about it. This is what Martin Luther meant when he said sin boldly. He's not telling you to go out and sin, he's saying you can't escape it, so focus your attention not on trying not to sin anymore, Focus instead on following Jesus, loving Jesus, leaning into Jesus, depending on Jesus. That is the means to sanctification, not I'm, gonna not, I'm not gonna look lustfully at a person ever again. You know why Jesus said whoever looks at a woman um, uh, lustfully commits adultery with her in his heart? Wasn't to tell you that you shouldn't ever look again, it's just to tell you that everyone's an adulterer. That's what he's telling you. He's, he's saying, the problem is not your inability to keep the external law. The problem is, is your heart, and only a new heart can change anything. And that's what he's like, if you're, I mean, look at the hyperbolic statements. Cut off your hand. Poke out your eye. There's horror stories where people do that. I think the fact is, is that what Jesus is saying is that the inevitability of sin should cause you to cast yourself in dependence upon the only one who hasn't, and that's me. And that actually is the means to the beginning of a process of sanctification where it's not, I'm no longer gonna look at this, I'm no longer gonna do this. That just is the best way to go right back to it. No, it's I'm now looking at this, and it's not this, it's him. I'm looking to Jesus. And it becomes the sanctifier of our lives. We're not, we're not overcoming or conquering sin by putting our attention upon it, we're putting our attention upon the one who already has. And you're gonna fail at it. And you're gonna be mixture. And you're gonna do things and say things that you ought not to. And that's why the church must be a place that, which we're gonna look at in great depth next week. Our fellowship is dependent upon our, our vulnerability and our, on our honest confession before God and before one another. You aren't confessing when you confess to God privately. I believe confession is meant to be a public and I, and I don't mean public like you get up here and say, you know, I looked at this particular site. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying public as in it's meant, to be, it's meant to be relational to God and others because as Martin Buber said in I and Thou, you can't look away from the face of your neighbor without looking away from God himself.
That we are to confess our sins not only to God but to one another because it's the thing that frees us of the tyranny of our pride and our deep desire to hide the reality of what we are from one another. The reason this pastor that's about to fall is falling is because he has been raised in a culture that says if you are a pastor, you must present to your people an ideal that you actually can never keep. And what that has created is a pattern of little sins that increase into bigger and bigger problems because unconfessed sin hides God from our reality while the confession of sin actually is the, is the very place where God meets us. And the longer you go without confessing and the more you hide, the less you actually see a problem with it. Because the human heart, with or without the devil, is masterful at creating excuses for why one should be able to do the things that we do. It doesn't take very long. Just think about it. I mean, I've met people who are like, like I should not, it's bad that I, I got drunk. And then like, I'm glad you confessed that. Like, yeah, man, like it's not healthy. It says don't be drunk, which is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. But you do it a second time and a third time and a fourth time. By the 10th by the time, you don't feel bad about it anymore. It's become normative. And in fact, there's excuses. You even go as far, like I actually wasn't drunk. I was just really buzzed. Um, and it's like, let's just ask a question. Would you get a DUI if you got pulled over? Oh, well, those are kind of strict there. It's the, it's the, it's the, this false idea. You know, I, I, like, I know this isn't good for me, but, you know, I deserve it. You know, that's what Ravi Zacharias said. He told the women that he took advantage of that it was, a, they were a gift to him from God. Talk about the mind's ability. It's the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's ability to deceive us into believing that what we're doing is fine when in actuality it's bringing death not only to us but to our people. When this new trauma comes out, it's going to bring a lot of death. But I believe God is incredible at weaving and bringing redemption out of broken situations and I trust him in that. But law is going to always be seductive, which brings me to the close, which is why we need to remember that grace is the outflow of life under the cross because grace is Emmanuel. It's literally grace in its most basic definition isn't unmerited favor. It is God with us. Grace is seen from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The first time we see grace poured out is when we see our first parents hiding in shame after the fall and it is God walking in the garden toward them, not away from them. He is, he's, not, he's not walking in anger to clear his head. He is moving right into the midst of where they're at. And he says, why are you hiding? And how you read the, the tone of God's voice will define how you think of him. It's not, I don't think he was like, Adam, where are you? Like the, the angry parent that like loses their cool. I think it's God who we're told has a still soft voice. Who's like, where are you? Who told you this? And we see the natural tendency of the human heart in sin, the scapegoating mechanisms, which are go all the way to the, it's the, that's the primordial call. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me, it was the serpent who deceived me. But God moves toward them in their brokenness and he says, your problem is my problem. I take this into myself. Grace was not achieved by Jesus' death. It didn't become available because Jesus died. 
Jesus died because of grace, not to create grace. It was grace that brought Jesus to the earth. It was grace that brought God into the garden because it is God's nature to love. It is the one-way love of God that flows out of his very heart. Love is the essential attribute of God in which all of his other attributes flow, I would argue. It's the only attribute in scripture given to him in the abstract in 1 John 4. Doesn't ever say that God is holiness. It says he is holy. But it does say that God is love. And it's not love in this ideological way. God himself is the embodiment of agape love, a self-giving surrender. It is a severe love. And this is why his wrath is his love violated. It burns fiercely against everything that is unlovely in the beloved. Grace is Emmanuel, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And I think when we think about the discussions around what's missing in the church right now, it's fascinating to hear from the various streams, conversations about the need for the Holy Spirit, longing for God's manifest presence, church membership, social justice, even the worship of the written word. But it's troubling to see a growing diminishment of the cross. And I would argue that the growing diminishment of the cross is not just those who don't preach the cross, but I would say anyone that preaches a truncated gospel, which would include the idea that Jesus only died for some. That is truncated in my, in my opinion. I would argue it's castrated. Because that just says that, I, that turns me into a liar. If that's true, then I can't actually say to you that God loves the sinner, unless you're the elect. And that is simply does not, that does not align with, with the multitude of passages that says that God loved the world, that he isn't just a propitiation for our sins, but for the whole world. And you can define that however you want, but you can't get around it. Jesus died for everybody. Doesn't mean everyone will be saved, but it means that nobody can be separated from God having not been loved. And I think that this is the diminishment of the cross. The path of Jesus is never inward and upward. It is outward and downward. And it would be an overstatement to say that if anyone speaks of the Spirit without a redirection toward Jesus and a missionary impulse, they may have the Spirit, but it's not the Spirit of God. And so when we talk about grace, we are talking about a constant return to Jesus, a constant return to Christ and Him crucified. And it is a constant movement out into a world that is broken. When the cross is missing, we lose our witness and our purpose. The strange result is often a deformed and ingrown and truncated gospel that cries out, we want you, Jesus. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Meet us in this place. Heal us. Speak to us. But please don't send us. Don't embarrass us. Love us, but please don't cause us any pain. What kind of gospel is that? I think that the secret of those that seem to breathe the rarefied air of heaven on the way to heaven is that as they go, the crucified and resurrected Christ himself is their rest. And wherever he is lifted up in word and deed, the dead come to life, the blind see, the lame walk, the captives are set free, and intimacy is found. It's our cross carried and his cross proclaimed. And what I want to tell you guys in closing is that God is in this place and we didn't know it. And we can only know it as we go with him. 
And it is his cross that reveals the immovable reality of his presence as he speaks those eternal words that are as true now as they were then and as true as they will be forever. And lo, I am with you always. This is why this is a thin place. Wherever it is that God is, and there is no place that he is not, but there is a unique manifestation of God's presence when his people come together, which is why we gather, is to be witnesses to him. And there is a unique manifestation of his presence when we go with him into the brokenness of this world. I close actually with a quote that may seem almost irreverent, but I read it in the beginning of this um, book by my favorite poet right now, Franz Wright. I've been working through all of his works, and it's called The Silence of God. And the opening quote is actually from a Muslim Sufi from like the 18th century. And I actually think he gets closer to the spirit of Jesus than much that I find within Christian writing today. And it says this, when Moses conversed with God, he asked, Lord, where shall I seek you? God answered, among the brokenhearted. Moses continued, but Lord, no heart could be more despairing than mine. And God replied, then I am where you are. What a powerful statement that is. And in Jesus, it is absolutely true. He draws near to the brokenhearted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. It's not perfection that makes us pure. It's a single-minded focus on the only one that can save us each and every moment. If you're broken, that's where he is, and he wants to meet you right where you're at. And as you are made whole, he wants to, he wants to meet the broken through you right where you're at as you go. This is the thin place. And this is why we must be about the cross of Calvary. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And I pray right now that by your Holy Spirit, you would guide us and direct us into the truth of who you are. That we would be transformed by your love. That we would be defined by your gospel that we would carry our cross and proclaim yours, that we would surrender our wills, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we want to honor you in the way that we function as your bride. And I pray that you would, by your holy fire, burn us clean, that our fixation would not be upon how can we arrive, but Lord, how can we surrender so that you can bring your presence to such a hurting place as this place. And so I pray for those that have come in today heavy burden. I pray for those that maybe are here that don't know you, that they would simply cry out, Jesus, save me. And Lord, I thank you that your salvation is not something that is possible it's something that already has happened. The question is, is will we accept it? And so Lord, we thank you that you are the savior of the world and we're told in scripture that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. And so we say together, Jesus is Lord. Say that with me, church. Jesus is Lord, amen.